Welcome back to the Practice of Being Seen podcast, episode number 31. The practice of being seen is about understanding who you really are and daring to share your truth with the world. These are conversations with and for seekers, creators, and holders of transformation. We believe that stories shape relationships and relationships shape stories. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong relationship therapist and founder of Connectfulness. I'm joined by my co-host, Marisa Gowdy, writer and storytelling coach for healers. And this is the practice of being seen. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. You know, for those of you who have been following along with the Pobscast, You may know that Marisa and I are unblending and pivoting and going in our own directions. This is one of the last few of our pre-recorded co-hosted episodes. There are two more episodes to follow this season, and then I'll be taking about a month off before I start re-releasing shows towards the end of September of 2017. You can expect that when I come back, the show will have much of the same flair with a slightly different pivot. And now, the show. Today, we'd like to introduce you to Carla Nomberg. Carla is a PhD, a clinical social worker, and a writer. She is the author of Ready, Set, Breathe, Practicing Mindfulness with Your Children for Fewer Meltdowns and a More Peaceful Family. And... Parenting in the Present Moment, How to Stay Focused on What Really Matters. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Huffington Post, among other places. Carla provides support, education, and psychotherapy to parents in her private practice located just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, which is where she lives with her husband, two young daughters, and a totally insane kitten. Welcome, Carla. <laughs> Hi. That's Hi. me. <laughs> Welcome, Carla. We're so glad to have you here. Thank you. And just for the record, we now have two totally insane kittens. <laughs> just want to set that clear so everybody knows exactly what they're dealing with here. I know what insane kittens are like. They're the best. They're the best. <laughs> they are. They are. They really are. So I first met you in person a few years back at the Mindful Mama Retreat. Oh, yeah. That was super fun. That was super fun. And that was the very first time that I met you in person. I've been totally impressed by your work. (laughs) Thank you. Totally impressed by your work. And I know there was a while in there where I was incredibly sleep deprived and you were doing research on sleep and parenting and you totally stole away a piece of my heart. So I'm super excited to have this discussion with you today and just to dive in. I could talk about sleep all day. So, but let's talk about all the things because I love all I would love to talk about all the things. You know, I think one of the things that's really clear is the three of us that are sitting down today to have this discussion, we are all mothers and embedded in that comes this sleep deprivation energy and the desire to be more mindful and more present and to show up more as I plug my kids with a remote control so that we can have this conversation today. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Been there, done that. We'll do it again in the future. 
And I no lie apologies. There at four o'clock in the morning between my two girls, <gasps> wondering, oh my goodness, I'm awake. It's horrible. The first bird is going to start singing. I know that bird. I've heard that bird many times. And <laughs> an we have awful a lot bird. of interviews to do today and clear voices to <gasps> theoretically have. Oh, to God. <laughs> so here we are showing up and asking you for help. <laughs> with the bird, with the sleep. What are we, what are we talking about here? <laughs> How can I be helpful? I'm well, so, I want to help you. Yeah, I'm guessing, you know, we are just a small pocket of many. And many of our listeners kind of join us in this messy soup of life. I'm pretty sure that on some level you do too. And Oh, that, all the time, every day, all day. Yep. Right yeah. there in the soup. Yeah. And this sparked a lot of just why we do the work, right? Tell us a little bit about your story and how you got into what you're doing. Oh, well, I guess there's sort of three levels of what I do. One is being a social worker. One is being a person who is deeply committed to practicing mindfulness. And when I say practicing mindfulness, when I use the word practice, I want parents to think about when they send their kids off to soccer practice or listeners, anytime you've practiced anything at the beginning, you weren't very good at it. And then the more you did it, you got a little bit better and a little bit better. So when I say I practice mindfulness, what I mean is some days I'm a little good at it. Some days I'm not so good, but I keep showing up to practice it. That's how I want you to think about it. And then the third level of what I do is working with parents. So the short story about being a social worker is that once I learned that the world of psychology and social work and helping people was a thing, there was just no other choice for me. It's just, I don't know how I'm wired. So that was nice. That just worked out and I really love it. In terms of mindfulness, the way I came to that is, you know, people ask me, how did you start your mindfulness practice? And I think they're expecting some story about like a spiritual journey or searching for meaning in life. But the fundamental truth is I just wanted to yell less at my kids. That's it. That was what brought me to mindfulness. That exact thing. I was losing my temper. I felt out of control. I didn't like how I felt when I yelled at my kids. I didn't like how it made them feel. And I would do all this research and, you know, top 10 list of ways to stop yelling at your kids. And I would print it out and I'd put it on the fridge. And I was so eager and I was so earnest. And then before I knew it, I was losing it again. And ultimately, I found mindfulness. And I always feel a little corny when I say this, but the truth is it changed my life. The skills and the tools and the insights and the clarity it brought me and continues to bring me on my own experience and what triggers me and how I can set myself up for success and then how I can be nice to myself in the moments when success doesn't happen have fundamentally changed my life and my parenting. Is that how you would describe what mindfulness is? It's that setup for success and being nice to yourself when it doesn't happen? No, not at all. How would you describe it? <laughs> um, so the way I think about mindfulness is based on definitions from John Kabat-Zinn and Amy Saltzman, who are both teachers and practitioners of mindfulness in the West. And they talk about making the choice to pay attention to the present moment in an interested and curious and non-judgmental way, also in a kind way. So then you can choose your next behavior. And so that's really about not just sort of being in the present moment, but being interested in your experience, kind of being curious, what's going on here? What do I need? What do my kids need? What's happening in my mind? What's happening in my body? And then being really kind to yourself about it, because sometimes what you find is really hard or unpleasant or uncomfortable. And the temptation is to judge yourself for it or to think, oh, I screwed that up again, or I wish things could be different. Or 
you know, somehow we tend to be pretty harsh on ourselves often when we're not noticing. It's just sort of what, where our minds go. It's the autopilot. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. the default mode is distracted and being harsh on ourselves. And so when I'm practicing mindfulness, okay, so this is hard and uh, it's hard for everyone and I'll get through it. And right now I just need to sort of be here and manage the hard. And that's a very different mindset from, oh, screwed that up again. Another $5 in the therapy jar for my kids or whatever it is. And so that's what mindfulness is for me. And the reason I brought it to parenting or I I practice it with a parenting lens is pretty straightforward. It's, you know, parenting is what brought me to mindfulness. Parenting is sort of the core central practice and focus of my personal and professional life right now. Not only am I a parent, my daughters are almost seven and eight and a half. So I'm still very much in the dirtiness or soup, I guess, of parenting. And I have a clinical practice and I work with parents because I feel like this is my village right now. And my village has supported me so much that I want to give back to them as well. You know, and I'm also thinking that parenting is just, we recently had Kim John Payne on and he talked a little bit about, he's wonderful. And he talked a little bit about kind of when kids are pushing our buttons, one of the things they're really doing is kind of eco-locating, like finding themselves, finding their place off of us. Mindfulness to me feels very much like the thing we do so that they can eco-locate off of us. Oh, yeah. I love that idea. So here's how I talk about mindfulness sometimes, speaking of pushing buttons. When I am not practicing mindfulness, I am like a big, red, glowing, hot, super sensitive button. And my kids can push it just by looking at me. (laughs) They push it all day long because that's what kids are supposed to do. And sometimes, you know, most of the time they push it in developmentally appropriate, fairly reasonable ways. And sometimes they push it because they're being super obnoxious and that happens too. And it's my job to figure out how to make that button a little bit smaller, a little bit less sensitive so that they keep doing what they're doing and my button is less likely to be pushed because I can't control what they do, but I can control how much, well, I can try to control how much I freak out in response. And the things that make that button less sensitive for me, and this has been Well, let's see, my kids are seven and eight and I'm still figuring this out. So this is a journey and a process for me. But here's what I've learned. When I get a good night's sleep, that button is a whole lot less sensitive. When I am practicing mindfulness, so when I'm slowing down, doing one thing at a time and really trying to pay attention to what's happening right in front of me, the button gets smaller. When I go for a walk every day and I'm tempted to say, sometimes I say daily exercise and people then get this idea somehow that I'm like running a marathon. No, no, not running a marathon. I don't do an hour of yoga every day. I try to go for a good solid walk for me being outside and moving my body and listening to like a really juicy audio book (laughs) on the walk. Those are all things that make my button less sensitive. And then there are days when none of that happens, right? I didn't sleep well. I'm not exercising. I'm having a hard time being mindful. Maybe I've had too much caffeine, too much sugar, and I just notice in myself, and this is where my mindfulness practice comes in, I am noticing my body's super tense. I am super snappy with my kids. I'm really reactive. And then what I say to them is, guys, I'm sorry. Like, I'm having a rough day here. We're all having a rough day. What can we do together to make this evening a little easier? Because, you know, it usually happens in the evening when we're all tired. And sometimes what that means is super easy dinner, watching a show together, bedtime, like bath out the window, you know, (laughs) homework, if they have any, that's not happening. And they're young, we can get away with that. And so part of my mindfulness practice is, you know, 
noticing how I'm doing so I can take those steps to set myself up for success, hopefully. And then part of it is noticing when I'm kind of a mess and that's okay. And just being really transparent with my kids about that so that, you know, if they're trying to eco-locate off me, which, you know, they're just trying to figure out what's going on in the world and how they're doing and what they're about. If I'm in a really cranky place and they're trying to do this and I'm not telling them what's going on, they're going to end up thinking something's wrong with me, by which I mean with them. They're going to think it's about them because this is what kids do. They think everything's about them. That's developmentally where they are. And so when I say to them, hey guys, I'm having a hard time. You're helping them locate themselves. You're right. helping them realize that it's not them, it's you. Yeah. And sometimes, yes. And so that's helping them create a narrative like, oh, okay. So this is what's going on in this moment. And you know, I'm modeling for them that it's okay to say to people, I'm not being my best self. And there are times when it really is them. It's not me. <laughs> and so then we talk about what's going on with you guys. You know, what do you need? And sometimes we can have that conversation. And sometimes it's just a whole lot of tears. And like, I just need to get food in them and put them to bed and we reset for tomorrow. So you know what um, I, I love about yeah. this is that you're looking at, in a way, before you said your work is about parenting and supporting the village. Yeah. And I'm also looking at, it seems that your home is being treated like the beautiful little village that it is and that all oh. the citizens need to be recognized and seen and heard. And there's different stories and helping them everyone understand their place and the place of the others in the home. Yeah, I love that. I don't think I had quite conceived of it that way, but I love that. And one of the things I want to be very clear when I just, when we talk about my home as a village mm -hmm. is my husband and I we're the chiefs, right? Like these are residents and yes, we all have a place and we all have a voice, but fundamentally my husband and I are the decision makers. And mm -hmm. I don't want parents to come away from this conversation feeling like every decision that they make has to be, you know, let's convene a family meeting and take a My vote or right. <laughs> that every conversation, you know, that your kid gets to have a voice in every conversation. There are moments when I say to them, Hey guys, it's enough already. Like you need to stop talking right now. Like no more talking for all of us or for you. Like just stop talking. Thank because... you. That right there was a gift. That, oh, just yeah. the fact that, that, like you just gave me permission <laughs> to feel okay. when I'm like, no, right now there's no more words and, and we're going to do that. So thank you. Yeah. For oh, and there are ways to do it that are, you know, kinder and nicer. And it's about your tone of voice and stuff. And there mm -hmm. are ways to do it that are pretty snappy and not so nice. And I've done both and I'm sure I will continue to do both. And that's okay. Cause you can also apologize to your child. You know, if we screw up, you can say you're sorry. And if it's your kid, you can talk to them about what was hard for them and how they can do better next time. You know, one of the things that I'm just realizing that I'm loving about this conversation so far is that so many of our conversations on this podcast are about relationships how we show up in relationships, what's difficult about relationships, how we repair relationships. We recently had Terry Real on and he was talking about relationship mindfulness. And what you're talking about here is what sets the stage for all of those relationships later in life. Uh, yes. Yes. I just had a great conversation with Hunter Clark Fields. She does mm, a yoga I love Mama Hunter. Mindful Mama podcast. Go to hunteryoga.com. And we'll have we her on in the future. She was also at that retreat where I met you. Yes, she's yeah. fantastic. So what we're talking about really is attachment theory. And, you know, very briefly, because that's a big topic, but it is this idea that the relationship that we have with our children now becomes kind of a template for the way that our children understand and exist and behave in relationships in the future. And it's not determinate. It's not, you know, if this, then definitely that. 
but it does sort of create this way that our children begin to understand what it means to be in a relationship and how relationships work. And that's kind of what we're talking about. And then there's the other side of it too, because as the parent, that's also how you learned how to be in relationships yes. and how you yep. learned how relationships work. And it's very often what's triggered and what's underneath those moments where that mindfulness practice really supports and serves you. Big time. And so for me, my mindfulness practice, like, you know, we, when we talk about mindfulness, it's very much about what is happening in this moment right now. But there's also this bigger piece of sort of self-awareness and understanding this is where I came from. This is what happened in my childhood. And now all of a sudden I'm back in the parent-child relationship. And even though I'm the parent this time, it's still bringing up all this old stuff from the last time I was in a parent-child relationship. And the way that I started to get a handle on that was with the help of a very lovely therapist. Yeah. And we spent a lot of time talking about here's how, you know, your childhood may have impacted the way that you understand what's happening with your daughters now. And so then I could go back to that moment with my kids when they're triggering me and I'm freaking out. And I could say, okay, wait a minute, time to get curious. What's happening here? Oh, right. It's not actually about them in this moment. It's about me. Or it actually is about them in this moment. It's not about me. And so, you know, having that combination of the broader self-awareness plus the mindfulness in the moment goes a long way. When I can bring them both to bear, which isn't all the time, but when I can, it really helps give me some clarity on the situation. Carla, how do you help people figure out how to get curious? Wow. That's a great <laughs> question. I feel like that's one of the things that a lot of the parents I work with get really stuck there. They get stuck in these cycles and these places, you know, old traumas, old storylines, whatever it is, they're stuck. And curiosity is so hard to access. Oh, yes, big time. So there's a few different ways and they don't happen in any specific order. So I'm going to just sort of throw out a few ideas at you. One is, first of all, talking explicitly about why curiosity matters and how it can make our lives in parenting a little easier and a little more fun. And I think a lot of people don't think about that. They just hadn't really thought about it. And so when you say it pretty explicitly, that's one way. The next way is to give people examples. You know, let's take an example when your child has a meltdown or when you're feeling stuck at work or whatever it is, what can you get curious about? Well, you can get curious about your own body and what you're feeling and the sensations in it, what that might be telling you. You can get curious about what you're thinking. You can get curious about what's happening with your kids or with your colleague. So just really kind of exploring with people the range of things they can be interested in. We can model very specific questions. You know, what do I need right now? When was the last time I fed my child? What might my boss be struggling with? When was the last time I fed myself? When was the last time I fed myself? <laughs> or had Do a glass of water or breathed. But the other thing too is that really talking about and exploring with folks their basic self-care. Because for many of us, especially parents, we are so sleep deprived. We are hungry. We haven't gone to the bathroom. We haven't moved our bodies. We haven't done all of these things. And our brains... You know, being curious is kind of an advanced 
brain function. You know, it calls on our prefrontal cortex, which is this part of our brain that does the things that sort of make us uniquely human, like planning and problem solving and regulating our emotions. And when we are exhausted and overwhelmed and flooded with emotion, that's the part of our brain that tends to come offline first. Mm -hmm. So asking ourselves to be curious when we haven't taken care of our fundamental needs is kind of a no-go. So if a parent is exhausted, I'm not talking to them about, like, you need to be more curious. That's kind of a setup. I'm talking to them about, A, how can you get more sleep? And B, how can you function when you're exhausted? So what tips do you have there? Let's go there for a minute because I know Marisa and I are among the many who could probably really benefit from those tips. Okay, about about sleep. sleep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So first <laughs> of all, um, if you are a parent or a caregiver of any sort and the person that you are taking care of, or animal perhaps, is not sleeping, that's a mess, right? That's just brutal. And so either you get someone else to come in and care for those people or animals, or you send them away for a night. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, if you read this specific parenting book about how to get your kid to sleep in this sleep book, it'll fix your problem. And my experience with parents is by the time they're talking to me, they've read every book, they've tried everything. And the reality is some kids are better sleepers than others. And some kids will never be great sleepers. And eventually your children will be old enough that if they're not sleeping, they can stay in bed quietly with a book or something. So you just kind of got to muddle through. Now, if you are the primary cause of your sleeplessness, as opposed to, say, a child or something, hopefully there are some things you can try before you go get a sleep consult. And the key here is deciding that you are going to make sleep a priority. And I know so many people, and I've done this too, who say, yeah, sleep matters, but X, Y, and Z. And you have to get to the point where sleep matters, period, the end. So here are some of the changes I've made in my life based on the literature that is really useful for people. One, I don't drink any caffeine after noon. And there are times at 4 p.m. when I'm like jonesing and dying and how am I going to get through this evening with my kids? And I just have to muddle through without the caffeine because it keeps me awake. Because you're prioritizing the sleep later over yeah. the being yeah. awake now. And if I drink the caffeine now, it's just going to perpetuate the cycle of exhaustion. Right. Two, starting about an hour before I want to be asleep, you know, so that's somewhere between 8.30 and 9.00. You know, we're lucky enough that we have dimmers on a lot of the lights in our house. I walk around and start dimming lights. Makes my husband a little crazy. I don't really care. He's not such a, <laughs> like, really, he's not such a delicate flower when it comes to sleep like I am. He can just go to sleep and I have to, like, have this whole routine. And so, fine, he can deal. So I start dimming lights because light is a hugely important issue when it comes to our sleep. And it really is, you know, our brains were wired to sleep with the cycles of light and dark and artificial light screws that up. So I start dimming lights. I do not stare at a screen in bed. This makes me sad because really my happy place is lying around somewhere staring at a screen. But I just... <laughs> Thank you for at least acknowledging that. <laughs> My kids. What I mean is my happy places with my kids, of course. Right, 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 right. Yeah, that too. <laughs> um, but, you know, the research is very clear, and my own experience has borne this out, that when we stare at a screen in bed, and, you know, TV is a screen, not great, but I'm really talking about iPads and tablets and f smartphones. It's like shooting evil wake-up lasers directly into the part of our brain that's like, what's going on? Am I awake or am I asleep? And the research is very clear, and they've done studies in sleep labs, that when you stare at a screen at bedtime, it will take you longer to fall asleep, your sleep quality will be worse, and you will be more likely to wake up in the middle of the night. And so now, 
I read books in bed. I read magazines. And I'm talking about like books, like old Not school. ones that are backlit. No, nope. And on the few nights, every once in a while, I'll indulge and be like, oh, it won't be so bad. I'll just stare at my little screen a little bit. My sleep is worse. Mm-hmm. Going to bed at the same time every night and waking up at roughly the same time. And for parents who have kids, it's not like they're sleeping in on the weekends anyway. And just deciding, I mean, what we know is that for the vast majority of people, you get better quality sleep earlier than later. So if you sleep from, you know, nine to seven, that would be amazing. Hallelujah. That <laughs> like, wow. Know, right? That never <laughs> happens. That's a fantasy. But let's say you did. Um, That's Mother's Day. I know, right? <laughs> When your kid is in college, that's ten hours. Mother's Day and your kid is in college, and the parents are alive. Um, so that's ten hours of sleep. That's actually going to be a better ten hours of sleep than if you sleep from midnight to ten a.m. So I remember my dad telling me that one all through high school and college, and I never, ever, ever wanted to believe him. So I have to well, say, but, hey, but, Dad, you're right. <laughs> but I think one of the things we know is that at different stages of our life, when we want to sleep is different. And so, mm. you know, teenagers are like genetically or biologically or whatever the right, they're programmed to sleep late. It's a developmental thing. It's not that your teenager's a schlub. It's just what they do. They'll get out of it. Like what I'm offering up here about sleep is not brain science. It's just people have to decide it matters. And when their sleep gets screwed up one night, they can't just be like, ugh, forget it, whatever. You know, you come back to it and you keep deciding it matters. The other thing is, is functioning when you're exhausted. And this happens to all of us. And some of the things I do when I know I'm exhausted, or first of all, accept that you're exhausted. This is part of the deal. Accept that exhaustion is real. Like there are very real impairments. And the way I think about it and the way I talk to my clients about it is imagine you came out to your car and there was a flat tire and you had to go somewhere. Would you just get in your car and drive away? Well, you could do that. And I guess you could still get to where you're going, but the ride would be bumpy and awful and you might get an accident. Somebody might get hurt. And those are all the things that happen when we try to function on an exhausted day the same way we function when we're not exhausted. So what do I do when I'm really exhausted? I take the non-essentials off my plate. Like the things that really don't have to get done that day, they're not going to get done. I move a lot more slowly. And the reason I do this is because I know my brain just isn't functioning as well and it can't hold as much information. And when I'm tired, I'm much more likely to drop things, break things, forget things, lose things, say something I don't mean, do something I regret later. And so I move a lot more slowly because that gives me a chance to catch myself before the blueberries end up all over the floor or whatever it is, or before I forget to strap my kid into her car seat, which you know, these things can have very, I mean, the rate of exhaustion, yeah. it's scary. It has very real effects. I also work really hard on those days to do just one thing at a time, which is something that most of us, all of us should be doing as often as possible. Anyways, multitasking does not work, but when I'm exhausted, my brain really can't handle the cognitive load of trying to do multiple things at once. And so the way I do this, cause I'm so ingrained to want to multitask, is that in my head, I will narrate what I'm doing. And when I'm really tired, it looks like this. Okay, I'm walking to the pantry. I'm getting the box of mac and cheese off the shelf. I'm walking back to the kitchen. (laughs) I'm putting the pot in the sink and filling it with water. I am turning off the water. I'm putting the, and like step by step, because otherwise I end up putting the noodles in the water before it's boiled or forgetting to add the milk or whatever it is. Or forgetting to turn off the stove and walking away. Right. The scariest thing. Yeah. Um, Help me for a moment here with this because I, 
Is that actually a form of mindfulness or is that a exhaustion survival technique or both? Both. both. Okay. So yeah, it's absolutely both a mindfulness practice and it's about just sort of basic functioning when I'm tired. And one of the other things I do with my kids, and I think it's really okay to do in professional settings as well, is to acknowledge that you're exhausted. You know, I'm not at my best right now. Please bear with me. Or I'll say to the girls, guys, like I'm exhausted. We're tired. Let's just all try to slow down and be as kind to each other as we can and get through the rest of the evening. That feels like a gift to get to that place. I know we often have those similar types of conversations in our home. And for me, when our girls are able to know where I'm at also, it totally changes the flavor of the conversation in the evening. Absolutely. And I think it can also be, it's hard to do for a number of reasons. One is, first of all, you have to notice how tired or overwhelmed or stressed out you are. And for many of us, when we're not practicing mindfulness, you know, we can go through our entire day and don't notice that we're tense until we try to get out of the car and our back goes. So the first part is kind of that noticing the second piece is realizing that you can say these things to your children and you're not going to lose their respect and you're not going to sort of lose your ability to parent them. Some people think if I tell my kids this, I'm giving them all the power. And that's not what it's about because I still say to my kids, yes, I'm exhausted and you can't hit your sister like that. And if you keep doing that, you're going to have to take a break from each other or whatever it is. I think power is a really big part of this conversation. Yeah. You know, oftentimes I'll be working with a parent as well, and something will have triggered them that their child does or says, and they get very, this place they get stuck in is they're the parent and they want to be right, or they want to tell their child how to do something or why they should wear a certain t-shirt or whatever it is. They get stuck in that place. Yeah. And look, there's no one right answer to any of this, but here's how I think about it. You know, our children need us to parent them. They need us to set limits and they need us to keep them safe. And they need us to make it clear what behavior is acceptable and what behavior isn't. And sort of the way I think about it is, first of all, any feeling is acceptable. My kids are allowed to be angry. They're allowed to be sad. They're allowed to be confused or frustrated. That does not mean any behavior is acceptable. So here are all the things you can do when you have big feelings. We can do some breathing. We can go for a walk. We can talk about it. You can take some space from me, whatever. You may not scream and yell and hit and throw things and mouth off and be rude. And if you do these things, which we all do, then we're going to talk about it. And I'm going to expect, expect an apology. And we're going to talk about how we make this not happen again. So really making a distinction between feelings and behaviors is useful. Yeah. And the other thing that I think about with parents is that sometimes they're exhausted and they lose their sentence in the middle of it, which is what's happening to me right now. <laughs> the question I think about, which is, you know, what hill do you want to die on? Which is kind of a way of saying, pick your battles. You know, yeah. are you really going to get into a fight with your kid over a t-shirt? And if this is a, if how your children dress is a deeply fundamental value to you, if that really, really matters, okay, fine, get into it. But you know, if not, don't worry about it. And some of this comes from our cultures and our villages and our support, you know, what we fight about and what we doesn't, what we don't. And some of it really comes from our own personal preference and the style and needs of our family. But you don't have to be right all the time with your kids. You can let them have some, especially the ones that aren't so important. Mm -hmm. I love that. Carla, as we start to wrap up for today, I would love if you would share with us a little bit about how all of the research and all of the writing and all of the work and all of the learning and all of the support that you provide to others has changed you. Oh, that's such a great question. It's just made me, I think, a more empathic 
person and parent on this planet. And I just, you know, from my own personal experience and when I read the research and when I talk to the parents I work with, I just am reminded over and over again how hard this work is, how hard parenting is. And just because it's hard doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It means you're in the mess of it and it's, it's super messy. I just want to say to parents out there and to remind myself, it's hard and that's okay. And all we can do is be kind to ourselves and reach out for support and get some sleep and muddle through. So I think kind of opening, this sounds so cheesy, but really opening my heart to parents and to my own experience in a way by which I mean just it's hard and that's okay. And I think that's a big piece of it too, right there. It's the reminder, the acknowledgement that it is hard. Being in the role that you're in where you're doing the research and you're being the support person, you're blessed with those reminders as well. Yeah. I think a lot of parents maybe don't have all of that information coming at them. They don't have all those reminders about how hard it is. And they see themselves in this isolated way where, you know, on all the social medias and all the other places, everybody else's life looks cookie cutter perfect. And they don't always realize how hard it is for all of us. Absolutely. And, you know, it's harder for some parents than for others, depending on your community and your resources and your relationships and your kids. But it is hard for all of us. And I really think there is this very pervasive myth out there that if we are parenting the right way, whatever that means, it will be fun and it will be easy and the kids will be okay. And the flip side of that is if it's not fun, if it's not easy, and if our kids are not okay, then we, the parents, are somehow getting it wrong. And that's just not true. Parenting and life are fundamentally hard. There are times when they are deeply, deeply not fun. And the kids aren't always okay. And that's a really hard thing to think about, especially in a culture where we are constantly flooded with images and information about what we should be doing better and how everybody else is doing better. And it's just about sticking in there even when it's hard. And when you can't stick in there, have some self-compassion and reach out for some support. You know, as I reflect on this conversation, I, there's one word that keeps coming up for me. And I have a, my own project called the Magic Words Project, where I look for a word every day that kind of guides, Ooh, I love guides that. me. Yeah, it's been a project I've done since January, and it really helps me both set an intention and set a reflection for each day. But I have a word that keeps coming up for me, and that's kind and kindness. But I would love to hear from you. If you had to pick one magic word, what would that word be for you? I'm also going to go with kindness. And I just feel like at the end of the day, you know, we work so hard, parents and people, and we're all just working so hard. And sometimes that hard work pays off and sometimes it doesn't. But at the end of the day, on especially on those hard days, we don't, people don't know what to do. None of it. What do we do with this? And, and often we end up sort of judging ourselves and swearing we'll do better tomorrow. And maybe we will, and maybe we won't. But when you can be kind to yourself and kind to other people, even if things aren't going well, everything's going to feel a little bit easier. And what we know from the research and from my own experience and from lots of people's experience is that when you are kind to yourself and kind to others, it makes it much more likely that things will actually go better. So I think mm -hmm. that's a great word of the day and I love it. Thank you so much for this conversation today, Carla. It's been super fun. It really has. Can you share with our listeners where they can find you and oh, how they absolutely. can stay in touch? I have a website www.carlanomberg.com and there's a newsletter on there that you can sign up for that I promise I don't sell your email addresses. I don't think I would even know how to do that. Like stand on the street corner and often, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not that tech savvy and I don't spam you very often, but I will send out 
about once a month links to fun articles or things I've written or cool podcasts like this one. So carlanomberg.com is where people can stay in touch with me. And we will include that in our show notes. You have also written a number of books. I'd love so, to include links to your books as well. Can you just give our listeners a quick reminder of those books? Yeah. yeah, Where are we going to find them? What are they going to look for? What are the topics? It's just two books. I don't know if that counts as a number, but the first one is called Parenting in the Present Moment, How to Stay Focused on What Really Matters. And you can see a picture of that book and links to you know more information about it on my website. Um, and the same is true for my second book, which is called Ready, Set, Breathe, Practicing Mindfulness with Your Children for Fewer Meltdowns and a More Peaceful Family. And both of those are also available as eBooks or on Amazon or in your local independent bookseller, hopefully. That is awesome. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Carla. I know I certainly did. And it's my greatest hope that all of you parents out there or people who work with parents take away the message that parenting is an imperfect art and we really do need to be gentle with ourselves and try our best not to compare ourselves with others. As you know, the Pobscast is about to pivot. We have one more co-hosted episode and one episode to follow after that within this season and then I'll be taking about a month off before I return with new episodes in late September of 2017. In the meantime, you're always welcome to continue following us at practiceofbeingseen.com for more great content. And we'd love for you to help us spread the word by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. Music written and performed by Christopher Ferris and produced at Kidneystone Studio.